Welcome to episode 107 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. Did you know that the American Revolution broke out in the midst of a smallpox epidemic? As our guest today, historian Andrew Wehrman writes, quote, George Washington did not have to convince fearful colonists to protect themselves against smallpox. They were the ones demanding it, unquote. Wehrman's book discusses what he calls, quote, a revolution within a revolution, where violent insistence for freedom from disease ultimately helped American colonists achieve independence from Great Britain, unquote. It is hard to read this book outside of the context of the COVID-19 pandemic that the United States is now currently enduring. The Wehrman's work is solidly located within the 18th century. His story speaks volumes about the issues Americans have been arguing about since that fateful spring and summer of 2020. What is the relationship between individual rights and responsibilities to neighbor? What is the meaning of freedom? How did our founding fathers understand the government's role in advancing public health? How did early Americans respond to inoculation and eventually to vaccines? If you are still trying to make sense of how to fashion a proper response to the COVID-19 era, or if you are interested in the history of the politics of disease and medicine, I think you're going to love this episode. Stay tuned. Andrew will be with us in a moment, but first let's take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that, by the way, includes this bi-monthly podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics, then head over to CurrentHub.com and click the red support button. Or go directly to our Patreon page at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash current. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at John Fia one or you can follow current at Twitter at current underscore pub. One. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega. 
megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Professor Andrew Wehrman teaches early American history at Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. He's a graduate of the University of Arkansas and Northwestern University, where he received his PhD in American history. His research focuses on popular politics and the politics of medicine in early America. Before coming to Central Michigan University in 2015, Wehrman was John G. and Jean McCoy Assistant Professor of History at Marietta College in Marietta, Ohio. He has appeared on C-SPAN, National Public Radio, and in the Boston Globe and Washington Post, and in recent years has become an important voice providing historical context for the ongoing debates over COVID-19, masking, and vaccines. In 2008, Wehrman received the Walter Muir Whitehall Award for his article in the New England Quarterly titled The Siege of Castle Pox. Our guest today on the podcast is Andrew Wehrman. He is the author of The Contagion of Liberty. The Politics of Smallpox in the American Revolution. Andrew, we've known each other for a while now, and I am glad uh, to see this book out, and welcome to the program. We have known each other for a little while. It, it is great to be here. I've been a reader of your blog and listener to the, to the podcast, and it's really fun to, to get this right. chance to talk to you. And again, as we're going to see, such a timely book, but how did you, I know you've been working on this book for a while, but you know, maybe go back. I don't know if this takes you back to the dissertation or, or you know, how far back it goes, but, but what drew you to uh, the history of medicine, the history of disease, smallpox? You know, how'd you get interested in this project? Good. I'm glad you invited me to go way back as historians like that kind of thing. So let's do it. So I was uh, entering college. I went to the University of Arkansas for undergrad, and I thought I wanted to be a, a doctor in high school. I had uh, was you know, really good at science and on our science teams and took all the, the science classes I could get. And I liked history a lot, did well in history. But uh, like my first semester at the University of Arkansas, I was taking uh, you know, biology and microbiology and, and uh, chem too. That was the tough one. And so <laughs> calculus, it was, it was a little left like a science major. And uh, chemistry was hard, uh, and I and I didn't do very well in it. I got a C in it, and that's something that, that I never did in, in high school. That, that hit me pretty rough, and I knew that there was the looming organic chemistry coming up next. And I thought this is just going to be murder. Maybe this isn't for me. My next class is going to be going to be so hard. Organic is famously hard, and I got to thinking about about history now. You've got students producing this and students listening to it sometimes. I would not take this advice, but I thought history's got to be easier. And I thought 
this is just me. I should have had better ad advising. I didn't talk to anybody um, uh, that was, you know, faculty members, but I asked around and I said, what's the hardest history class here? Because if I can get an A in the hardest history class at the University of Arkansas, then that's the major for me. I'll just go take the hardest one now. That's the, the attitude I had after getting a C in chemistry. So I asked around and it was the age of Jackson taught by uh, Professor James Chase. It was a, a 400 level class. It was graduate students and, and undergrads together. Uh, the freshman first class I took, uh, it had a research paper. I wrote a research paper on the second Seminole War using primary documents and microfilm readers. And I, and I loved it. I got an A in that hardest class. Medicine was gone or that track pre-med. I was a history major after that. And so then I was preparing to be a history major, wanted to go to grad school in, in history. Uh, it was only later, a, a couple of years later, in uh, when I was at graduate school in Northwestern, studying the American Revolution at that point, was really interested in ordinary people in the American Revolution, uh, town meetings, how uh, communities came together to uh, uh, debate issues. I was interested in all that kind of stuff. And it was only then when I was looking for this dissertation topic that I started finding these debates about smallpox and something kind of clicked, uh, went back to those old science training. I didn't know there was a history of medicine when I was an undergrad that you could actually study that. Um, but it was the, the documents themselves that kept pointing to smallpox. I had read Pox Americana, Elizabeth Fenn's book, a great book when I was, it came out uh, when I was an undergraduate history major, and I liked it. Uh, and so my first concern was just, has this already been been done or, or talked about? And it really hadn't. Her book covers a lot of the damage that smallpox caused across the, the continent in some innovative ways, uh, but it didn't really get into the, the politics, the, the debates, um, the kinds of places where uh, that I was interested in, where my book goes, how it affected ordinary people, how they defended themselves against it. So uh, it was a roundabout way uh, back into into a medical field, but uh, I had to relearn it through history. Yeah, as you were talking, I was just thinking about that. I don't know if you followed this recent controversy about this NYU organic chemistry professor who was using organic chemistry as a uh, what is what is the word a uh, a class to uh, um, weed knockout out course. Or yeah, yeah. Knockout, knockout course. Right. I was thinking of that. And of course, at Northwestern, well, maybe not, of course, but at Northwestern, you studied with uh, the esteemed historian uh, Timothy Breen, T.H. Breen, who's one of my right. favorite early American historians. So uh, did you have to sell Breen on on doing medicine? Uh, you know, he's never written on that subject, I don't think, at least. He'll talk about a knockout kind of anyway, he was tough, but um, yeah. uh, no, I think uh, he was pretty supportive uh, yeah. from from the beginning, was just happy that Werman finally picked a dissertation topic was <laughs> was mostly where he went. Uh, he wanted me to stay in New England, though. He thought the story was in was all in Massachusetts. Yeah. And that's where I had to push back. I thought, yeah. you know, there's a Virginia story here. There's some Southern stuff um, that I needed to cover. So that that was the pushback. And some really good stuff in New England, too, um, you know, but uh, yeah, definitely. So for some of our listeners, I, I venture to guess a lot of our listeners who just don't know the kind of, 
you know, terminology, right? The, the, the identifications, we call them on our exams that we give to our students, right? What are some of these? Let's just get some definitions out there so we know what we're talking about as we move through the rest of the podcast. So you are writing about smallpox. Uh, give us a sort of short little little uh, synopsis. What was, I guess, is the is the right term, right? Past tense. Yeah, it's past uh, tense. It's gone. Yeah. What was smallpox? Yeah, it's nice that we have to recall it, that it isn't with us anymore. Of course, smallpox is the disease that killed more human beings than any other disease in human history. It might as well be called human pox. It was a, a, a ortho pox virus. We had monkey pox in the news a, a while back. That was one of this family of pox viruses. But smallpox was the worst. It was only in uh, human populations. So once we uh, uh, were able to keep smallpox out of the human population, that's how we can say it was eradicated. Um, smallpox has been around for, or was around for, for thousands of, of years. Uh, it was a viral disease. It spread through uh, exhalation, through, through water vapor, through coughs and sneezes and, and, and people's breath. Um, it uh, had a kind of long in incubation period. So it, there was no asymptomatic cases. Um, but if you were near someone that had smallpox, um, about a week later, your symptoms would start to appear. You'd get a really high fever. Your back would would, would really hurt. Uh, people had splitting headaches. Uh, a few days after that is when those pox, the namesake pox, would start appear. They'd start poking up through first in your mouth, on your tongue. Um, that's that's where it spread to other other people through through your breath. And then it would start breaking out on your face, your hands, your feet, your extremities. Um, the only, and, and it had a really high mortality rate, um, 20, 25% mortality rate, sometimes even higher with native populations or populations that hadn't been exposed to this kind of uh, viral infection before only good thing if there was any good thing about smallpox was that if you survived it you're normally uh, scarred or pitted but uh, if you survived it you had lifelong immunity to the disease you would never catch it again now i just recently took some students who uh on a kind of historical tour of of uh princeton and we stopped at the grave sites of some of those early first princeton presidents including jonathan edwards who died of smallpox inoculation. And I was trying to explain to the students exactly what that was. Um, but, you know, why don't you explain then what was the medical sort of remedy, at least the pop most popular medical remedy, if that's fair to say, for smallpox in the 18th century was inoculation. What was inoculation? Yeah, so... Really early on in, in, in uh, countries where smallpox was often in present, Asia, China, India, parts of Africa, um, people realized that if uh, you were exposed to smallpox and you survived, that you would have immunity. So in each of these places, um, people would sometimes, especially if there was an outbreak, would try to purposely get infected with, with smallpox. Um, they could control when they got it, if they were feeling healthy, and then they'd survive it. And that's where inoculation sort of 
developed. At some point, we're not sure where, there are different claims from India and Africa and China, but people uh, recognize that if you made a, a scratch in the, in the skin, this is the kind of Middle Eastern India method, if you made a small scratch in, in the skin of your arm and then took a little bit of that white pustular smallpox matter, nasty stuff, but if you took a little bit of that and you dropped it into that into that incision, into that scratch, and you covered it with a bandage, uh, that that would confer the disease smallpox to you, but you would have a, a much milder course of the, the, the disease. The mortality rate was much lower for this. It's called uh, inoculation. That term comes from um, horticulture. Right? If you, you can inoculate plants by engrafting them. They sometimes call it engrafting as well. So this is the, the technique of purposely uh, uh, putting smallpox matter into your skin, giving yourself a purposeful case of inoculation, survivable disease. After you survive inoculation, you would have uh, uh, immunity for life. Yeah. Well, the big problem with inoculation, what makes it different than later vaccination is that when you inoculate someone and you and they go through these smallpox symptoms, mild as they are, uh, that person could still spread smallpox to other people. Natural smallpox could start a an epidemic, right? So if uh, if I inoculated uh, myself or had myself inoculated at my house at home, I wouldn't want to stay home and spread smallpox to my children. So that was the problem. You would have to go isolate yourself in a, in a hospital or be quarantined when you were under inoculation. So that makes it difficult. Uh, over the years though, it's proven that inoculation is really successful. Colonial Americans learn about it first in a famous case in, in 1721 in Boston where an African uh, slave of Cotton Mather tells him about the technique. Uh, at first it's controversial, as the decades go by, as you're getting closer to Jonathan Edwards' inoculation in the 1750s, um, all of those controversies have pretty much gone away. Uh, there aren't religious uh, uh, people calling it a, a, a dishonor to God, playing God by purposely giving, vaccine, uh, giving inoculations to people. And that goes away. People realize how good it is. They're seeing the statistical um, difference between getting naturally infected with smallpox and getting inoculated. So the, the demand for the procedure is going up, which is driving up the cost. And that's what we're dealing with at the time of the revolution. Um, people understanding what inoculation is, wanting that protection for themselves, for their community, but having to figure out how to actually administer it, how to pay for it. So you mentioned this uh, this African enslaved person that Cotton Mather's uh, slave, um, and and Onesimus is his name. We should say, yeah, Onesimus. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and which you know is quite biblical, <laughs> you know, in some ways. Right. Uh, Book of Philemon. But he doesn't seem to, you know. I, I like how you kind of every now and then suggest that you know Onesimus never kind of is included in the kind of history of this in the early years, right? It's kind of ignored as the one who actually probably did bring the idea of inoculation to, uh, to Massachusetts. Is that fair? 
That's right. Um, yeah. We've sort of rediscovered Onesimus. Uh, he's in yeah. the documents. He's, he's named. Cotton Mather writes about him. Um, but as inoculation gets more popular, and, and part, and I think uh, very much the fact that it, it has to become more popular, um, as it does, Onesimus's name gets dropped. Instead, yeah. uh, Mather's name sometimes gets dropped too. He's a little controversial associated with the witch trials. Um, Zabdiel Boylston, who's the doctor in Boston, who is the first to inoculate people, he becomes more famous. And when he publishes his history of the 1721 epidemic, he doesn't write about Onesimus. He barely mentions Mather. Subsequent histories and retellings of the history of American inoculation almost always exclude Onesimus from the story. And as I write about in my book, Americans start to generate their own history of it. They start to say that they're the ones who invented inoculation. They rob Onesimus of his knowledge and they and they take it for themselves. I thought that was interesting. Um, so. So inoculation, you point out in revolutionary America, you know, in the lead up to the revolution during the Revolutionary War and so forth, um, is always, always intertwined with uh, politics. And much of the early part of your book is sort of a series of episodes, right? In which, uh, you know, let's try to maybe take this out of New England uh, with the Norfolk riot you know but but tell us that i'd also i'd also you know if we have time i'd love to hear about um the island off the coast of marblehead uh the castle pox island too but but there these are all tied into kind of these political debates which i think are very useful today i think for us understanding you know contemporary debates over this kind of public these kinds of public health issues but you know don't don't speak to the contemporary at the moment tell us about you know, give us one or two episodes of of the way in which inoculation becomes politicized in the in the lead up to the revolution. Well, inoculation is political in that it's a thing that lots of people want, and there's a scarcity of it. Um, and there's a scarcity for several reasons. Some places just don't have access. Um, other places there are there are fears of it, or it's expensive. So there, uh, Americans are calling for the government to provide it. Um, so I'll give you some examples. So uh, as the demand increases, people are reading about it. Uh, they're jealous of people who go and get inoculated. In we'll, we'll do the Norfolk case, so the yeah. Norfolk riots. So this is in the uh, late 1760s, 1767. Uh, a group of, of wealthy people in Norfolk decide that they want to get uh, inoculated for, for smallpox. And it was often wealthy people that sought it first. They would be traveling to other places or going to port cities or, or their children maybe were going to go get educated in London or something. And they wanted to be protected. Uh, smallpox was not endemic in, in the colonies. That is, it wasn't always present. It was in Europe. So if you were, if you were a colonist and you were going to travel to Europe, uh, it was a smart thing to do to, to get inoculated. Now, so a group of people in, in Norfolk decide that they're going to get inoculated in their home. They invite uh, a few of their friends to come over and do it. There's about 20 or 25 people. 
that have decided that they're going to get together uh, in, in a single uh, building, uh, private plantation house, and they're going to get uh, inoculated together. Now, as I mentioned, the problem with inoculation is that you have to quarantine people to do it or else it's going to spread disease. So the neighbors of, of, of these families, the neighbors of, of this plantation house get very angry because opening uh, inoculation up in a place that doesn't have smallpox could be dangerous. Who's going to quarantine this house? Who's gonna make sure that nobody leaves? And the quarantine period had to last for three or four weeks. So. Um, the neighbors couldn't trust that this was going to be successful. They were very angry. Now, a lot of the earlier historiography, there's not much on this case, but the ones that are there have called this an anti-inoculation riot. Um, eventually, the people destroy this house where the inoculations are taking place, just to tell us what happens. And so uh, earlier historians have said that this was anti-inoculation, that the, that the colonists didn't trust the procedure, they didn't understand it, they were anti-science. And that's not really true. If you read the, the primary sources, a lot of the people who were angry were people that believed in inoculation, wanted to get inoculated themselves. They just didn't want only the wealthy to do it. It wasn't a we'll get uh, a little bit modern times. It wasn't a personal decision to get inoculated. It involved the whole community. So they said, look, uh, if we inoculate, we should do a general inoculation. We should just have the whole town inoculated at once. We can pay for it through public tax money. And that's what we should do. Now, some of the wealthy people in these towns, and this is a similar debate that happens in Norfolk, as it happens in Boston, as it happens in Marblehead and some of the other places I talk about, uh, your wealthy merchant class would say, well, no, a general inoculation is going to be expensive. Uh, we're going to have to pay for it out of our taxes. But more importantly, it's going to shut down the economy. Um, nobody's going to do any trading with a town that's completely infectious, right? Um, it's it's going to close up our port for weeks. Instead, they tended to want these private hospitals. Uh, the poor generally wanted open access to inoculation, but to have it all at once. And that's what the debate was about there in Norfolk. There's a series of attacks on uh, inoculators. It comes into, the, in, into a court case, uh, a, a big one in Virginia. Thomas Jefferson is the lead lawyer defending the people who want this private inoculation in their homes. And uh, these court cases run all the way up into the, the, the 1770s. Um, it lasts a long time. And these are big concerns of, that people had that were similar to the revolution, right? So it's about authority, uh, who gets their way? Is it the people or is it uh, 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 the wealthy? Uh, it's about trust in in government, trust in your neighbors. And they these episodes of, that I described, there's a, a riot in, in Norfolk, one in Marblehead, uh, really echo a lot of the ideas that we find in other revolutionary debates. You know, this might be a little repetitive, this question, I mean. I'm gonna ask you about sort of contemporary present day things in your book here in a few minutes. You know, I think you, you kind of answered this in the question, but what was this relationship between, you know, individual liberty 
or what does this these episodes tell us about the about the relationship between individual liberty in the era of the American Revolution, right? And the concern for public health, because I mean, this is right at the core of what we're going through today, but these two things were, if I read your book correctly, were not necessarily at odds in the way that we see today. Is that is that a fair a fair thing to say? Yeah, to that's, that's at odds. The first thing to say, I think, yeah. is that uh, everybody wanted inoculation right this yeah time. there was not an anti-vaccination movement if you offered inoculation and you could get someone uh the time off work that they needed you know that was part of the expense right of, of being in the hospital for several weeks while while you went through it if you could provide that for people people would take it inoculation was always a community concern it to, to, in order to defeat smallpox, in order to inoculate the public, it was a public health decision. So in all of these places, especially in, in New England, uh, it would go to town meetings. There would be debates. Should we have liberty to inoculate? Should we allow the liberty for uh, inoculation? And in that case, liberty, as they understood stood it, didn't mean should everyone be allowed to inoculate if they wanted to, to have a personal freedom to do it. Liberty meant should the whole community together under agreed upon regulations uh, do this all at once, do it together. Uh, it was a, uh, a liberty that understood community responsibility of, of a common duty of government. It was generally understood that the that government, local government in this case, had a responsibility to protect its citizens from disease, and so these decisions were very public. They were they were debated in newspapers, debated in town hall meetings. Uh, sometimes uh, things would get tense, and they'd be you know moved to riots. But most of the time, they weren't. Most of the, most towns settled these things in their in their public meetings and in their newspapers and things like that. Yeah, it's so interesting. One of the things that just blew me away, to be honest with you, I never thought about this before until I read your book. It's just how much uh, this, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, I think you say it, uh, that the small, there was a smallpox epidemic during the American Revolution, right? I mean, it was overlaid over the top or integrated into whatever you, however you want to do it. Uh, but, but, America was going through the colonies were going the British colonies were going through an epidemic as the revolution was being fought. So I just want to I just want to read a couple lines here from your book. And they're both on page 163, or at least in the copy of the book I have. You say um, the last town meeting in Boston before the Battle of Lexington, right? Lexington and Concord. right? We all know about that had nothing to do with taxation, representation, tea or gunpowder. It was about smallpox, right? Um, you know, imagine that. You know, we don't even, I, I would have never thought about that, you know, as first, you know, and so that's just fascinating to me. And then a little bit further down on that page in the next paragraph, you say, it is worth wondering what might have happened if the, Bo if uh, what might have happened if Boston had voted for a general inoculation to begin on April 1st, 1775? Again, April is the month in which Lexington and Concord happened, right? A general inoculation would take at least a month and would certainly have altered the timeline of the American Revolution 
and the so-called quote-unquote shot heard around the world on April 19th, 1775. So, you know, these kinds of decisions about, about inoculation and about dealing with this epidemic are going on right in the thick of, you know, some of these storied moments, if you will, in uh, the history yeah. of the American Revolution. So, so talk a little bit more about that. I'm glad that part jumped out to you because that was oh, a really, really exciting did. discovery yeah. on my end. And I don't know that this is mentioned anywhere else because that last town meeting, the last time they held a town meeting, this was at the end of March, uh, 1775. It was called together because of all of the smallpox cases that had been breaking out in Boston. And they routinely in Boston, I talk about Boston quite a bit, but when there's a certain number of smallpox cases in the town, usually when that number gets up to 20, when there are 20 households that have smallpox in them, the, the, the law is that they would then have a general inoculation of the whole town. They would protect everyone. They're going to try to isolate it, quarantine as much as they can until that number hits 20. As soon as there are 20 infected households, uh, they they assume they can no longer control it, and then the town closes down for an inoculation. So, yeah, uh, I think we tend to think as historians, I certainly taught it this way, that smallpox was a byproduct of the revolution, that when you had soldiers in the field and on the march and in their camps and in their hospitals, that smallpox then broke out amongst the soldiers, and then uh, the military, George Washington, had to deal with it. But smallpox was a problem before that. And it was in Boston before the conflict happened. So that town meeting in in late March, um, the the colonists are still working with Governor Gage at that point because he's important to help control uh, smallpox except Gage is no longer sending reports to Boston selectmen about how many uh, smallpox cases there are amongst the soldiers. So at that meeting, and it's not announced beforehand or else I think there'd be a lot more people at the meeting, but at the meeting, um, Gage or one of his associates um, reveals that there are, I think, 40 soldiers sick with smallpox, British soldiers and their families sick with smallpox within Boston. 40 is way over that 20 threshold. And the Bostonians already knew about 10 or so cases um, beside that. So it's an explosion of cases. It's the most smallpox cases they've had in decades. And uh, they ha have, a, have a question. Should we shut down? Um, should we go into inoculation? And they don't. Um, at that point, maybe the pressure is too uh, too much. Uh, the the selectmen don't the this kind of Boston City Council uh, elects not to do that. But I think we have to wonder if they did, because throughout the revolution thereafter, and I describe it in my book, there's so much mistrust. Uh, the colonists think that the British are spreading smallpox on purpose. They're trying to infect the the troops and the army. But there's this moment there of where something really could have could have changed if they had followed their own protocols and shut down, uh, put a you know closed Boston Neck to all traffic, 
allow all the soldiers and citizens there within Boston to inoculate together. It's worth wondering, I think, uh, what if that would have mitigated some of the hostilities. These general inoculations usually took uh, a month or, or longer. Um, other towns around Boston probably would have done the same, same thing. At, at, at a minimum, it could have eliminated some of those rumors that the British were trying to spread smallpox on purpose if they would actively you know, join together to stop it. But they don't, and it just creates more mistrust. I think we can assume that some of those soldiers who marched out, the British soldiers towards Lexington and Concord, were carrying smallpox with them. Uh, the Americans were not immune either. There was smallpox out in some of these uh, uh, central Massachusetts towns, too. It was, it was really everywhere. Fascinating. That part blew me away. That's one of those moments, Andrew, where, like, you you go you go to your lecture notes and like you know add a few extra lines in you know about your Lexington and Concord lecture, um, and, and you know I also as I read that I thought about okay like think about 2020 right you know we had the Black Lives Matter protests we have you know January 2021 the insurrection on the Capitol a controversial presidential election two impeachments or at least one impeachment at the end there right you know. All these things are going to be in the history books and and COVID-19 is kind of seem, you know, seemingly running throughout all of these significant moments. That's that popped into my head as I read your, uh, you know, as I read well, your. Good, because I, I, yeah. I'm glad you're I've been thinking about that, obviously, since the beginning with all of yeah. this in my in my head. But it's true. And I, and I try to make that argument or, or I've thought about it uh, in, in writing my book how how that works um because i think the presence of smallpox americans you know checking the newspaper to see how many people are sick today like so many of us did right. early in in covid uh, and and their newspapers were much more detailed they would say that that you know mrs fox on south street was was ill or had to go to the it would name their names but which is very helpful for historians uh but they're looking at that every day. They're checking the paper for those case numbers. And I'm sure that that drove some eyeballs over to the other stories in the newspaper about hostilities and British actions and, and that it, it raised the blood pressure of, of everyone at the time. I think that's kind of what you're, you're getting to, that, um, uh, that, that having ex the experience of a pandemic, of quarantine, even if you support the quarantines, um, there are things that are uh, making you nervous, making you angry. If you're home, uh, what do you have but to check the internet? And what do these people have but to uh, talk about the news? Um, I, I think that it that it really um, exacerbated or was a, was a catalyst to some of this. Some of the things that that I think as historians, when we teach the history and we wonder, you know, why were people so angry at this particular moment where some of these taxes happened earlier, they didn't explode in the same way. That's the kind of thing I, I think about, you know, what what was the factor that this disease's presence um, did to people? And and just just the, uh, for the for the listeners, I put Andrew's book in this sense right alongside one of our previous guests from a couple of years ago, Serena Zabin's book on the Boston Massacre, which, which provide, that book is not about disease, but it provides a kind of social history of Boston in 1775 
or 1770s, I should say, really have completely changed my view of how I teach, uh, you know, this period. And, and um, I don't know if anyone's, you know, made that kind of connection, but Serena's book was also very, uh, uh, you know, getting at those kind of ground level friendships and relationships and concerns and anxieties in the city of Boston, much in the same way that you do. So I would, I want to encourage listeners, if you like this interview, um, you know, because you love the history of Boston, go back and go back and listen to uh, Serena Zabin. Her book um, uh, came out, I think in March, 2020, or right at the start of the pandemic. And I read it as I was doing some of my revisions and that her book helped me write that passage that, that you read a minute ago and you maybe recognized it because I thought, aha, it's, it's clear that these soldiers are living with civilians. And we, we know that many of the British soldiers were immune to smallpox, but their family members weren't necessarily. And that was a, a key to unlocking that, that little bit that was pretty late right. in writing the book that I had that that moment exactly what you recognized. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad I was the only one who recognized it. I mean, yeah, just just really fascinating. Again, um, let's talk a little bit about George Washington. Uh, George Washington wanted to. Uh, well, you tell me. I mean, he kind of goes back and forth a little bit. Eventually, decides to inoculate the army, but uh, it was not that was not his first instinct. So, you know, maybe in a nutshell here, uh, as we're as time's ticking away, tell us a little bit about Washington and how his views on inoculation sort of change over time. Yeah, the, the chapter I have on on George Washington, George Washington's about face, I kind of see as a crescendo uh, moment of some of the things that are happening because Washington was was. Uh, as often depicted as the one who inoculated the troops, the one who believed in inoculation uh, against all odds. Um, but he was actually one of the last people to accept it. Um, soldiers, ordinary Americans were demanding inoculation in these town meetings, but also within their military units. Uh, his surgeon generals, his his doctors were were calling for inoculation. And for the first uh, two years of the war, Washington not only resisted doing it, but actively uh, uh, opposed it, um, called for the jailing of inoculators, called for really harsh punishments of any officers that went off and got inoculated, because that was happening, right? There were smallpox in the army, uh, so it would be natural to, to want to go to, to seek out inoculation for yourself. Lots of soldiers were doing it. They were getting their enlistment bonuses and then running off and get ino- getting inoculated before they would go on the march. There were whole regiments of soldiers that uh, inoculated without permission before Washington gave the order. So Washington was under significant pressure from below um, uh, to, to make this decision. Just real quick. Why would he be against it? Was it just an issue of kind of order and, you know, there's got to be one policy and he didn't like the fact that all of these uh, people were doing it on their own? Or did he have some kind of, you know, opposition to it intellectually or medically or? Yeah, there were a number of of, of reasons why. And I try to spell out yeah. some of these in, in the book. The, the main reason is that uh, he thinks it's dangerous, right? And he's not wrong here. Um, if all the troops go and get inoculated. 
a fraction of them, a tiny fraction of them will will die. Um, some of them will be uh, injured and unable to, to fight. So there's that human cost. Um, he's also worried that if uh, during the inoculations, the army might be susceptible to attack from the British, he wants to keep it, keep it secret. There are other reasons too. Washington really doesn't seem to trust the, the procedure of inoculation very much. He had had and survived uh, smallpox as a teenager. He understood that it was dangerous, but most of his soldiers were also teenagers. I think that he thought that if a few soldiers did get smallpox, they could survive it. He tried to keep it out through, through quarantine as best he could. Um, uh, he rarely uses the word inoculation in his writing. It, it, he seems to be sort of fuzzy in his understanding of how it works until pretty late, until 1776. His wife, uh, Martha, goes to get inoculated in Philadelphia on her own. Um, George Washington says that he, he doubts her resolution, that she'll actually follow through with it, but she does it. And I think her inoculation and her success sort of softens George Washington a bit. The first time he uses the word inoculation uh, is after Martha's inoculation, and there are all you know, there are these uh, doctors that get into Washington's camp. One of the leading inoculators in the United States, uh, a, a guy named John Cochran, who's from uh, New Jersey, rises in in the ranks. Um, he's uh, Philip Schuyler's brother-in-law uh, for Hamilton fan. So he's, he's tied into some important people. He's really telling Washington because he's inoculated in large numbers. And he says, look, we can, we can do it. We can do it to scale. Um, we can inoculate large groups of once. We can inoculate new recruits as they're getting their, their marching orders as they're doing that. And over time, uh, Washington becomes convinced. He changes his mind. He does waffle back and forth. But once he changes his mind in February 1777, he never goes back. He sees the success that it has. It's very quick. Uh, the soldiers survive it in large numbers really successfully. The, no soldier um, opposes it. There's no record of anybody protesting it or anybody saying, I don't want to be inoculated or this is against my liberty. I mean, it's George Washington calling for it. How could you say that your idea of liberty is different than his? Uh, they all uh, go for it. It is tremendously successful. The Continental Army then becomes uh, immune to this grave uh, threat and uh, continue fighting, obviously, with, with good results. Now, Andrew, you take the story beyond the, the war itself um, and you uh, talk about, I mean, there's a lot more here. I'm jumping around, but, but talk about the transition from inoculation to vaccination, um, you know, in the, in the early 19th century. And, you know, maybe even for those who don't understand, I mean, at this point they should in the interview, but, you know, tell me a little bit about what a vaccination is and how that then replaces inoculation and how it fits into your story. I didn't want to end with Washington's inoculation. That's where my dissertation ends ended, but it always felt a little unsatisfying because I wondered where that momentum went, right? If, if uh, inoculating the public 
um, uh, was was so popular, uh, where did it go? How come smallpox continued and and for so long afterward? And so I knew I needed to, to include vaccination. And vaccination isn't discovered, isn't known about until almost 20 years after the revolution. Americans start learning about it in 1798 when Edward Jenner publishes his treatise on, on vaccination. Jenner discovered uh, a, a true breakthrough, uh, and that is that, uh, and this has been known a little bit, there's controversy that Jenner wasn't really the first, but he was the first to publish on it, as so often happens in, in uh, science. He gets the credit. But the, the discovery was that uh, if people who are exposed to cowpox, a similar kind of pox disease that affects cows, people who are exposed to cowpox are immune to smallpox. And the great thing is that humans can't really spread cowpox to each other. It doesn't affect us. It, it does not really make us sick. So instead of inoculating someone with smallpox that makes you really sick with smallpox, you have to be quarantined for three weeks. If you use cowpox instead and plant a little bit of cowpox matter in, in your skin, uh, you're hardly sick at all. You can go to work the next day. You don't have to worry about spreading, you know, uh, uh, cowpox to your to your neighbors or your coworkers, right? When we go get a COVID vaccine, we don't have to be quarantined afterward because we're going to spread COVID to people, right? That's not how vaccines work. So it's a huge revolution. So now in in medicine, uh, no pun intended there, uh, to allow people to get uh, vaccinated, to have immunity to smallpox, but also not spread it, not have the need for quarantine. And you would think that that improvement uh, would mean that smallpox would immediately be eradicated. There were people during the revolution who are saying, um, great, now we're going to eradicate this disease. Vaccination's going to help us do it. Let's have some general vaccinations of communities. And that's not what happens. Um, uh, the, the story of, of vaccination and its introduction is really fascinating. It's, it's the last chapter of, of, of the book, and it, and it doesn't work. Uh, well, it, it does work, but it doesn't uh, uh, happen generally to the whole population for a, a number of reasons. Um, some Americans start saying that that's too expensive, that that's going to cut into commerce. We should just allow vaccination to be an individual person's decision uh, whether or not to be vaccinated. That's where some of that starts coming out. And it was possible, right? If you were, if you were inoculated, uh, it becomes your neighbor's concern, your whole town's concern, because you might spread smallpox to all of us. But if you're vaccinated, um, you know, it's a, it, it can be your, your private business. Nobody needs to know. Uh, you'll be safe. So vaccination was then sold as a, as a private remedy. Doctors would perform vaccinations and sell it. It didn't need town meetings. It didn't need all of this public administration around it. You didn't need expensive isolation hospitals. You could just vaccinate people a little bit at a time as they wished. It was a big moneymaker for doctors. So public health moves away, at least 
to some extent, right? You know, over time, this takes place from the kind of communal to the private. And in some ways, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, I mean, your your book is solidly grounded in the 18th and early 19th centuries, but but this this helps us explain, I think, why vaccines have, you know, at least in the 20th century, be, have become such a, a political, you know, uh, sort of hobby horse for those who want to libertarians or people who want to defend kind of individual rights um, in a way that inoculation was not. Is that fair to say? That's right. Inoculation just couldn't be or it was unacceptable yeah. to most for that to be a private decision because that involved yeah. whole communities where uh, vaccination and, and the great benefit of it also allowed it to be done privately. And that's instantly yeah. the way a lot of Americans thought it should be done. I've been I've been kind of kind of hitting this question here and there or getting at this last question. I wanted to ask you at various points throughout the interview, but let me just ask it to you directly here, Andrew. Um, you have been, a, well, first let me preface it by saying you have been a voice on Twitter, on op, in op-ed, social media, you know, other, other outlets all through the pandemic. And, and I want to thank you for that, for providing so much historical context to some of these questions, posting newspaper uh, clippings from, you know, the 20th century and the 19th century. Um, so so uh, I've 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 called your called uh, my blog readers to your attention multiple times um, or my, you to my blog readers attention multiple times. Um, but I just want to hear from you. What it, what is it like? What was it like? kind of putting the finish and this project of course obviously predates covid you could have never imagined a, a pandemic would have happened when you started this project but it but, seemed like but, kind of an esoteric project that people yeah. might not be that interested in yeah. you know i was writing it for an audience that you know had never never would have experienced quarantine and i was explaining what quarantine was in the early chapters and then realized everybody's going to know what that is now. Yep. Uh, so yeah, what was yeah. it like? What was this experience like kind of writing this book? You know, I was actually talking not on this podcast the other day. I met uh, 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 through, I won't get into the circumstances, but a historian of Ukraine, you know, who was like toiling in sort of obscure Ukrainian history for 10 years. And then suddenly like his phone suddenly, starts ringing, yeah. you know, I mean, what was this like, you know, writing in this, in this context, this kind of book. And there was some of that kind of excitement that I had some knowledge uh, that, that, that some people wanted, maybe not enough of the right people wanted what I had to say sometimes. Um, at times it was depressing uh, to see, you know, to know so much about quarantine and the, and, and the law and the way people in the past have dealt with, with epidemics and to then see us not doing a lot of that in a, in a, in a lot of cases. So um, that was odd. So an example of, of that, I was on a, a conversation at our university when uh, COVID was breaking out and they said that they were going to have a, a quarantine dorm for people who got sick. I think most universities had something like that. And I said, um, quarantine dorm, is that legal quarantine? Like are county officials going to run that or who's, who's doing it? And they just looked at me like I had three heads. And I, and, and I said, well, are there going to be like police outside or a fence? Like what kind of quarantine? And there were no, it was, it was self quarantine, right? It was all honor system. And it just, 
uh, I was too much into the 18th century, I guess, but that idea would have boggled the minds of colonial Americans. You can't trust people to quarantine themselves. Uh, they would have, you know, built a wall around that building or, or posted guards around it 24-7, allow nobody to, to leave. And then when I realized that there were no, you know, that really local governments, county authorities had long ago forgotten in some cases what was actually in their in their power to do and especially after even the sort of smallest steps sometimes towards public health uh towards quarantine and masking were met with such a vigorous angry response i realized this isn't going to go the same way we're, we're not going to be able to to stop this in the same way yeah yeah those guys carrying those don't tread on me flags and 1776 flags that burned me up, John, because, yeah. you know, I, I just kept thinking, you have no idea what 1776 was about. The people at that time cared about stopping disease, right? Well, if you read this book, you now will know what people in 1776 thought. The book is The Contagion of Liberty, The Politics of Smallpox in the American Revolution. Andrew Wehrman is the author. He's been our guest. Uh, on this episode. Um, great stuff, great stuff. And and go out there and get a copy of this book if you want to think more deeply about everything that's going on in the world of public health and medicine and COVID today, because this just provides a layer of interpretation that most Americans are not getting. So thank you for writing the book, Andrew, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great having the book out there finally and out of my own head and into readers' hands. If I understand it, it came out where, uh, two days before we are recording this. Is that right? That's right. Two days ago. So it's hot off the press with Johns Hopkins, but uh, you can get it at your booksellers or wherever you buy your book. So thanks again, Andrew. Thanks, John. you enjoyed the interview with Andrew Wehrman. There are really few, few history books that I've read in the last several years that really speak to our contemporary moment in the way that uh, Andrew Wehrman's book, The Contagion of Liberty, speaks to uh, this moment. Uh, the title um, comes from actually a phrase used by the American revolutionary historian, historian of the revolution, Bernard Balin who used the phrase contagion of liberty to express the ideas, the political ideas of the American Revolution. Andrew has taken that idea contagion and has certainly you know, made it a little more literal in his study of the relationship between disease, smallpox specifically, and the American Revolution. Again, if you want to understand what is going on uh, with all of these claims about what the quote unquote American view is of public health, Wehrman takes us right back to the moment. And I think, as he was saying towards the end of the interview, 
if you want to start claiming American ideals in this debate over public health, COVID, vaccines, masking, make sure you know your history. Because um, if you read Andrew's book with an open mind, there's no way you can embrace uh, some of the things going on right now in terms of resistance to uh, to uh, vaccines and just the general way that some are uh, handling this COVID uh, crisis. So go out there and get a copy of this book. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. And um, you know, I think you'll learn something. But again, thanks for listening. And may your way of improvement always lead home. The Way of Improvement podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermeling. Our producer is Casey Lehman out of Nashville. And I, John Fia, am your host. <laughs>